course it is, yeah, but. Anything new on Teddy? No, not that I've heard. Poor boy. Poor family. Yeah. Well, that's rough when you're getting sick. Well, he, he's just been sick so much. Oh, man. Oh, that's not that great, huh? Yeah, especially, I don't know. Ah. Didn't he have RSD a couple months ago? He, he had rhinovirus yeah. a couple months he, ago. Yeah, but he had yeah. didn't he have it like I know. I thought it once before. It wouldn't surprise me. I thought he had a combo last time. Yeah, month. me too. Yeah. I thought they got the last one was RSD, but then it was. Oh, okay. Well, no Marquez's coming. I don't really. No Marquez's today. Good morning. Hi. How are you? I'm Carol. Huh. That's funny. I was reading. The, I was listening to the wrong um, book this week. So I, I am good on Isaiah right now. <laughs> You're ahead of schedule. I am ahead of schedule. That's good. You're so ready for next week. I am so ready for next week. Whoops. You guys, is it more helpful to have a five-day reading structure or a six-day reading structure? I don't. I'm not gonna lie. I just get through it however I get through it. That's okay. I write cool. down the reading structure just yep. as like a pacing guide, but I just yep. kind of do whatever works. Well, we'll give you five. All right, we'll give you six days, and then you can decide. How I say it's a long book. How would you do it if you were doing it in four? In four? You know, you, it, the don't biggest thing with Isaiah. Just, <laughs> I can tell you one. <laughs> one through 66, all in one shot. Yeah, actually, it's easily divisible by three, so. Right, yes. Well, 15, 30, 45, 60, would be four, really, plus six. That's how you would do it in four days, I think. Yeah, I will say, I almost always include I just said we were doing it in six days, so. huh? Start heavy in the week and light. We'll do that, okay? For those of you that want the two-day reading, you got the two-day reading. <laughs> <laughs> 1 through 39 and 40 through 66. They are? Baptism in the Lord's Supper. Baptism in the Lord's Supper. I'd say ask me to sing it for you, but she's uh she's homesick. Oh, oh no. Her and Isla. Everybody's down. Okay. Oh man. Be right back. I need my Bible. That's an important piece.
Okay. But of course, you know me, I can't keep up with this stuff. So that's why I just listen as we go along. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It was, it was a race to the finish. The Avery's. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. You want the stuff in Okay. Knew I was missing something. Okay. Well, let's get started with some prayer. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. I pray as we go into First and Second Kings that you would remind us of your faithfulness and how you are good to us. God, I pray that you would remind us of your promises and remind us that we need a deliverer who's greater than any kingly figure of this world or president or politician that we need ultimately you. So we love you. We give you thanks. We pray that you teach us now in Jesus name. Amen. I I do find it fitting that we're going through this book in God's providence, right? This is not luck. This is not chance. We're going through this book in God's providence in the middle of an election season. <laughs> so um, I, I find that very interesting that the Lord would have our church at this particular moment going through First and Second Kings at this, this season. So I, I just want to start with a reminder, see if anybody can help me out with this. What is the four-part blessing of the Abrahamic covenant that we have covered in the Old Testament? For part to the covenant. People, place, presence, blessing to all nations. People, place, presence, blessing, and curse. Right, that's twofold, right? Okay, somebody walk me through this. What's God getting? What does he mean by people? Chosen a people for himself. He's going to make a people for himself. Excellent place. place. And they're going to dwell. Okay. Not only are they going to dwell in a place, they're going to have his presence with them. And he will bless them for obedience. Bless those who bless them. Curse those who curse them. Bless them for blessing him or curse them for cursing him. Right? So all back and forth. That is the four parts to the... Uh, blessings of the Old Testament becomes very important for the entire narrative of where we have been. Well, last week we finished our study of wisdom literature. I hope you guys enjoyed that. That was good to go through like Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. I gave Caleb the juicy ones. Hopefully uh, you enjoyed that uh, together. Um, And as we've been going through the Old Testament, now we are coming out of our wisdom literature and it's going to feel a bit weird because we're going to be in First and Second Kings this week. And then next week, we're jumping to Isaiah. So you may be asking yourselves, why? Why are we doing that? 
very intentional uh, within our structure of the Old Testament. We're trying to show you the development of God's people in a particular place with his presence, with either blessing or cursing. Okay, so uh, it's important to see how this is going to play out in the narrative of the Bible. And you know what? I would even suggest that maybe our course study and our course map, class to class, may be a really good way for you to read the Old Testament. Okay, so maybe tuck that in your pocket and think of for, about it for future times where you're going through uh, the scripture. But today, rather than focusing on lit- or wisdom literature, we're going to be going back to the ultimate story of what God is doing. He is saving sinners. That is the ultimate story of what God is doing. So we're going to look at First and Second Kings. So let's start with what do we know about First and Second Kings? What do you guys know about First and Second Kings? Okay, massive uh, line of succession. Basically from the end of David's reign to the exile to Babylon. Okay. Excellent. David's reign to the exile of Babylon. Okay. The nation becomes divided. Okay, yep. Division. Okay, how are they divided specifically? Uh, Israel and Judah. Okay. Let's uh, maybe even simplify that further. Ten and two. Ten uh, you do have the tribes, yes. Well, we'll just put it this way, north. North and south. North and south. Ten and two, okay. What else do we know about First and Second Kings? You read through it once this week, hopefully. There's often like an explicit theological interpretation for the historical events that happen. Okay. Yeah. So theology is not separated from history. History is not separated from theology. That may be really important for your worldview. Okay. Any particular theological emphasis that you may see within First and Second Kings? Faithfulness. Okay. Faithfulness. I like to call First and Second Kings good king, bad king. <laughs> I feel like that's a really helpful breakdown. Good king, bad king. Um, so we have good and bad, uh, which, yes, we do see in moral significance, but we also see in spiritual significance. Notice every time it describes a bad king, it says he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Okay. Not just necessarily evil in the general sense, though that is very applicable but specifically that he has done what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Are there more good kings or bad kings? More bad. More bad kings. The kings stink, right? Okay, so... And every time, like, the good kings get less good over time, too. Yes. Until we get to Josiah. Well, Hezekiah. Hezekiah and Josiah. 
So total depravity is on display here, right? The human condition, the idea that we in and of ourselves are naturally bent toward bad and not toward good, right? We are sinful, we're rebellious. In light of that, we also see that God is sovereign. He is indeed faithful, but he's sovereign. He is ruling through these, these kings. Doing them in, in his own way, in his own power, with his own might, for his own purposes. Okay, great. Awesome. So uh, a few of the things that you guys have laid out, we do indeed know from First and Second Kings. Like, we know uh, that there is a division of the kingdom. We don't know who the author is, okay? So we don't have any particular author that we can point to. What's really interesting is uh, the book of First and Second Kings was actually originally a single book that was then divided into two sections, Anybody have any inkling on what the why there may have been that division or what that division may be? Just scroll length, I think. Could have been scroll length, yep. That that was largely influential. I think God in his providence has also worked through our process of putting together the canon to to do this. And I think part of that is to look at the the line of succession going into captivity, particularly. I think that that may be, play a role. I'm not a scholar on that, so, but I think that there may be some significance. Um, we know that the, the compiling of this book was largely done during the time of the exile. And this is when the people were taken from the promised land to Babylon. And we did mention the timeline of this going all the way from David to Babylon which would extend in some sort of time range of 970 BC all the way to what could be concluded of 400 BC, okay? 900 to, seven, or to 400 BC. The kingdom is divided north and south. Kings is really a study about God's promises of mercy and how they will interact with his promises of judgment. So I think a good place for us to start today will be to look at what are some of the promises of judgment that apply to us or mercy that apply to us. What sort of promises of judgment do we have and promises of mercy? Maybe if we could just get two or three. Any of these promises of judgment or mercy apply to us? In us, modern Christians? Yes, yeah. Particularly us, modern Christians. Particularly us, we here gathered today. I think uh, in a non-salvific sense, the, uh, the reward for obedience, the punishment for disobedience, that still holds like he uh, he definitely doesn't spare the rod because he's a good father it's a reward for obedience and a punishment for disobedience do apply to us. Yep. I mean, this is related, but 
I mean, one of the common through lines is idolatry, and that there's still like consequences for idolatry. Mm. Stinking idols, <laughs> right? Idols pulling us away from the Lord, mm-hmm. still getting judged for, for idol worship. Rightfully so. Maybe within this idolatry, I uh, would want to highlight to you guys a particular note about the role of a king as one of our idols. Think back to First and Second Samuel. How did God respond to the people's desire for a king? You want it, you got it. You want it, you got it. And Samuel was grieved over the people's desire for a king. And the Lord responds to Samuel and tells him, do not be upset for the people. They, they have forgotten me. They've forsaken me for other things. They want to be like the world, right? So in the sense of idolatry, we see... The role of a king, wanting, and specifically behind that, the motive is to, to be like others. Which is really a, a total, the total opposite of holiness. Right? Holiness is the idea of reflecting God's character, reflecting his goodness, reflecting his purposes. But the people, what they want to do, rather than standing out as a holy people, they want to just blend in as an unholy people. That's idolatry. It probably is pride as well. Okay. These are really helpful. There are definitely ways that judgment and mercy from First and Second Kings work not only with those particular believers in that setting, but also toward us. Now, when we think of that, let's take all of those things and let's answer this. Are they resolved in the cross? Judgment for idolatry, for disobedience, for mercy toward our, our, um, the reward for our obedience. How do, we, how do we actually find the reward in that? It's through the cross alone. In the cross of Jesus Christ, we see complete forgiveness. Forgiveness that sets only because of God's action on our behalf. He takes what we have and our desires and makes us new through the cross. That's good news for us. Amen? <laughs> so as we start to look into this idea of First and Second Kings, we actually need to start all the way back in Deuteronomy 28. So flip your Bible to Deuteronomy 28. Whoever gets there first, go ahead and read Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 4. Amen. The blessing continues. If we skip down to verse 58, you're going to have to flip a couple pages here. It says, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, 
that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. The curses continue, though. Look at verse 64. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. There are God's blessings on his people if they keep his covenant and curses if they don't, right? We have in mind the fourth part of the Abrahamic covenant. At this stage, God is speaking directly to his people without a king. Everyone pretty much represents themselves before God. So I want you to think of it like this. God is speaking to his people. This is without a king. God is speaking to his people. These promises and conditions that are in Deuteronomy are the undercurrent of everything that happens in the book of Kings. So we move forward. We move forward to see God's people with their first faithful king. That's King David. Past the judges, past Saul, finally to that first faithful King David. Now the Old Testament focuses and turns to the kings in the line of David. It's not that the people and their behavior are unimportant, but that the king now serves as a covenant representative before Yahweh on behalf of the people. So we we change from this structure where God's speaking directly to his people into this. God to the king to his people. And within this, remember, this is direct covenant. Now we have in the king... A covenant representative. Your local state representative. Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> don't, don't ask. Because <laughs> they won't give you anything good. <laughs> and it may take weeks and months to get back to you. <laughs> With these kings, God's relationship with the people is changed forever in the Old Testament. We see in 2 Samuel 7 that David's house and David's kingdom are going to reign forever or endure forever. God says that he will punish David's descendants when they do wrong, but the promises of a forever kingdom is without condition. God's just going to do it. It doesn't depend on his people at all. So the book of Kings starts on a real cliffhanger. The blessing and curses of Deuteronomy are in full effect. But so is this new promise of a kingdom that will last forever. In light of that, blessing, cursing forever, but there's also a new kingdom that's been established. So what's going to happen? Will the people have a king who obeys the law? Or are they going to have someone who rebels and causes suffering? If the king obeys the law, they get blessing. If he doesn't obey the law, then the people are going to be cursed because they're going the way of the king. And if they're, rebel, if they're rebellious and they're cursed, according to God's promise in Deuteronomy, what happens to his promise in 2 Samuel? Does the kingdom continue or does it fall? That's a good question. 
we're going to look first now at God's people with their fulfillment king. Okay, God's people with their fulfillment king. So first and second kings, interestingly, starts off with this crazy story of David who's in his old age. Really interesting note, right? He's given this woman to keep him comfort. And I don't know about you, but as I was reading through it again this week, I was thinking, uh-oh, David, you, you didn't do well with this the first time around. This could be really bad for you the second time around, right? So the people uh, come and they bring somebody to David so that he can be comforted in his, basically on his deathbed. He's really sick. He's not doing well. And behind all of that, what's going on? While David's sick and he's got this woman who's coming around to make sure that he's okay and that he's taken care of, praise the Lord, he's not tempted into the same sin that he fell into with Bathsheba, right? But there's something else going on in the background with David's family. Anybody remember? Yeah, so one of the sons tries to uh, hastily take the throne without David's blessing. Now, remember that there was a promise given to Bathsheba for Solomon, right? It was that Solomon would reign in David's place after David's death. So right away, 1 Kings chapter 1, you see that this promise of blessing or curse is already in the balance, right? There's already a fight that's happening. And it's a fight that exists outside of the king within these people because of their depravity. They're trying to fight for their own purposes. So let's look at 1 Kings chapter 2. Okay? 1 Kings 2. We'll look at the first four verses. At the time that approached for David to die, he ordered his son Solomon. He said, as for me, I'm going to all the way... uh, Going the way of all the earth, be strong in a man and keep your obligation to the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes, commands, ordinances, and decrees. This is written in the law of Moses so that you will have success in everything you do and wherever you turn and so that the Lord will fulfill his promise that he made to me. If your son guard their way, to walk faithfully before me with all their heart and with all their soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. In these words, we see two key promises. What are they? Any ideas? Two key promises. The first is that his line will never fail. If your sons continue in this way, you will have one of your sons on the throne forever. And the second is that David's descendants, beginning with Solomon, are then charged to walk in God's ways and keep his decrees and commands if they're going to receive that blessing. So there's a promise that the line will never fail, and there's a charge that they must walk in God's ways. And with that that charge comes promises there. If they keep the charge, they experience blessing. If they disobey the charge, they experience cursing. And it's interesting that we see throughout the rest of the, the book, First and Second Kings, 
that that's exactly the, the, the storyline. The kings that obey God are blessed. Those that disobey God are cursed. So what happens next? Will Solomon be the, the king of this fulfillment? We'll look at Sol- or 1 Kings chapter 3. We'll go specifically to verse 12. I will therefore do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. God grants to Solomon this great wish as he is with, before Solomon in a dream. He's seeing these things. And, he, and the Lord basically says, ask what you ask and I'll give what I give. And he could have asked for honor. He could have asked for power. He could have asked for fame. He could have asked for riches. Instead, he looks at the magnitude of ruling this people and says, God, give me discernment. Give me discernment on how to reign uh, as a king over these people. And in turn, the Lord is pleased with his request. He grants it to him and he gives him honor, fame, power, and money in return for that. There will be never, never one like him. The results of the wise ruler are clear then through chapters 4 through 10. In 420 and 21, it tells us that there's population growth, that there is eating and drinking and happiness. In 424 and 25, it tells us that there's peace and prosperity in the land. And then all the way down into verse 34, this world-renowned fame for God's people and, and their king is known. His reputation is known among them all. But most wonderfully, the Lord blesses him with his own special presence in what we see in the tabernacle, or not the tabernacle, the temple, uh, in chapters 5 through 8. In chapter 8, verse 10, God enters that temple, just like he did in the tabernacle in Exodus 40. But this temple is unmovable like uh, in comparison to what was the tabernacle of the day. Then we, if we go all the way to Solomon's benediction that he gave to the people of Israel on that day. So go over to 1 Kings chapter 8. Okay. Look at, we're going to look at verse 56. It's this shot that we get to see of re- of the historical redemptive theme that we've considered throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. 1 Kings 8, 56, Blessed be the Lord God. He has given rest to his people, Israel, according to all that he has said. Not one of all the good promises he made through his servant Moses has failed. He praises the Lord because God has been faithful to his word. He continues to say, the Lord, our God, be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord, our God, day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Notice the phrase in verse 56. Not one word has failed. Not one word. Everything that God has kept all the way back to Moses, he has declared he has been faithful to every single word. 
So here we see that the covenant mediator, the king, right? This idea right here is bringing God's blessing to his people through his obedience. And in many ways, Solomon is the peak of this covenant. God's people need a king, not only to receive God's blessings, but also to help them display God's glory to a watching world. So we see, as the king walks out in faithfulness, he's mediating the covenant. Solomon, particularly, ends up being a blessing to God's people. Not only does he bless them, he then helps them through his obedience to glorify God. That's the chief end. The chief end is to bring glory to God. So it would be easy for us right now if we just ended right here. This would be the awesome end of the story, right? Victory's come. Everything's good. We've got the king walking in the perfect ways. Oh, man, it all looks juicy. We're having a great time. There's no need for anything else. The people are blessed. The nations are blessed. God's glory is on display. Is that how it ends? No, <laughs> no. We're just like halfway through First Kings at this point, right? We're just halfway through. What's shocking is that when Solomon is praying in this time, that seems perfect, not only does he say, God bless us, but he also prays to the Lord and asks him to extend mercy for when they sin. Notice that he says, when they sin. It's not even a question in his mind. He knows that these people, he knows that in himself, he's going to fall short. So he asks for mercy when they sin. Look at verses 46 through 50. In the prayer, he says, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Whoa, Solomon's discernment, Solomon's wisdom is on display right here. Guys, think of this, okay? This is before the captivity. This is before what we're going to read in Isaiah, before what we're going to read in the rest of the, the, the prophets. This is a future reality. They're going to be in a place where they're going to be exiled. They've sinned against the Lord. And why did the Lord take them out of the land into this exile? Because of their sin, right? And Solomon is saying, when this takes place, Lord, if they repent with all of their heart and with all of their soul, hmm, this sounds a little familiar to the book of Deuteronomy, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and with all your soul, with all your strength. The Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. If these people walk out this way, then hear their prayer, hear their plea, and forgive them for their sin. I think it's really interesting too. He does talk about bringing them back into the land, but I think the major emphasis here is forgiveness for their sin. Solomon is displaying a king that we need. But there are two problems that exist within this prayer, right? The first is, the problem is that no one does not sin. No one does not sin. We all sin. And secondly, with that, in light of our sinfulness, we must remember God is perfectly faithful. So while that's always something we celebrate in Scripture, it's also a problem that exists for humanity in Scripture. We're sinful, God is sinless, and he's faithful to execute his judgment. All the way back to Deuteronomy 28, right? God will judge Israel when they disobey, and he will send them out of the land. And as a result, God's people need a king who will ask for mercy when they fail. Right? So again, if we think of this, this representation, right? The relationship between God, the king, the people, right? We see within Solomon that God is working through the covenant with the king. And as the king obeys the people, it ends with blessing. And they glorify God. But there's going to be a time where they're not going to walk in obedience. And the king is going to be an example of that. But the people are going to be an example of that. So ultimately, they're needing mercy. Sadly, what follows in the fulfillment of, is the fulfillment of that prayer. The people do sin. The so-called fulfillment king will fall and take all of his people down with him. And to see how that kingdom fell from the towering heights that we just read about, we got to turn to chapter 11. So turn over to chapter 11. This chapter tells us the sad story about how Solomon didn't heed the advice of his own song. Instead, as we read in verse 3, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and these wives led Solomon's heart astray. Man, 700 wives. <laughs> That's a lot, <laughs> okay? A relationship with a single individual, right? <laughs> is, is demanding, right? Stretching. 700 of them that he's married to and 300 that are basically his playthings. <laughs> we see his sinfulness is just totally on display. Somebody who could be so wise yet so dumb, right? <laughs> David wasn't perfect either though, right? Yet in the scripture, we see that David's proclaimed as the king after God's own heart. One thing that he did, that David did well, that Solomon failed in, was David did not worship other gods. His heart was always fully devoted to Yahweh. And what we're going to see from this point forward is that every king's heart will be compared to David's heart. And here we see that the first to succeed him failed that test. That's chapter 11, verse 6. 
Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to the Lord. He failed in the Lord's sight. So in verse 11, the kingdom is torn from the hand of David's son, and yet even in anger, God remembers mercy. Look at verse 13. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Remember the end of that verse. For the sake of my servant, David, for Jerusalem. So Solomon blesses the people for a time and asks God for mercy, but he's not their fulfillment king. He doesn't live perfectly and he doesn't live forever. Pausing here, I think it's helpful to take a few points of application. And the first is this. I think that the narrative section helps us to reflect on the danger of how being just a few degrees off of God's law can send us to eternal ruin. And can totally send us in the wrong direction, right? Just, just getting something just slightly wrong sends us in this direction that's really dangerous to us. And, and so I, I think when we, we think about that, particularly as modern Christians in this moment, we need to make sure that the main things are the main things and that they're plain. And it's why we need to constantly come back, especially to clarity of the gospel and say, this is what the gospel is and make sure that we have that down right. Because if, if we get just a part of the gospel wrong, we're preaching a false gospel and we're not sending people into hope, we're sending them on a dangerous path of destruction. So it is important to know like the response to the gospel being repentance and faith. If we don't have that key element, people can't respond. We need to understand particularly about the gospel, that the gospel centers around substitutionary atonement, that Jesus died for us in our place. Not just that he died for us, but that he took on our place. He bore the wrath for our sake. That was God's judgment, but also God's love. God's love motivates us. His love was what sent Jesus to the cross so that Jesus could consume God's wrath and we could be made right with him. So it's important to recognize the danger of how being just a few degrees off is not good for the long haul. Um, I think we also can look at the idea of Christian leadership here. Leadership within Christianity, particularly within the church. We need godly leaders who are going to obey the Lord's commands and lead by example. Solomon was wise, but he was also acting very unwisely in one particular area. And that brought down the entire nation. And so I think it's very safe to say here that sexual sin is really important when it comes to Christian leadership. Because we're setting an example to the world. We could like know the Bible well. We could communicate well. We could care for people well. We could have a lot of things right. But if we are not what 1 Timothy 3 says, committed to a one-woman relationship, committed to our spouse, then 
we will see a crumble. Some of you have lived through that crumble. You've seen Christian leaders who have been unfaithful in their marriages. And it has just been a disaster story for the church. So Christian leaders don't comp or Christians don't compromise in your leadership, making sure that they 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 uh, uphold God's standards. And ultimately, I think that this passage helps us to see that God is trustworthy. Did you notice that God never broke His promise with His people or with David? He never broke His promise. He was faithful to it. He always keeps His word. Not one word fell short. That should encourage us immensely because when we struggle to see how God's promises are going to work out in our circumstances, maybe things are tough, maybe they're not perfectly laid out, we can remember that God's faithful. We may not see it right now, but we will see it. We will see it come to life. So as we move forward in Kings, we see that God's judgment is that the nation is going to be split. They're split into two kingdoms. Okay, let's remind ourselves of this. The two kingdoms are, Devin, what are they? Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. Okay. I have a quick question. Yes, go ahead. When Solomon had all those wives, why couldn't during that time God come down to Solomon and say, hey, this is, this is not right. Why are you doing this? That's a great question. I don't have a great answer to that, but you know, I find it interesting, especially when you think of David, Solomon's dad, right? When he committed sin with Bathsheba, the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to be like, hey, brother, remember what you did before the Lord? It is interesting. You know, God works in the ways that sometimes we can't explain. But we will see that as the story of Kings continues, the prophets are going to play a great role in helping us to see sin and uh, see its consequences. Wonderful question, Carol. Okay, so we've got the, the, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom, the kingdom of uh, Judah. Which one's the north and which one's the south? Glorious, okay? So Judah is south, Israel is north. So it's a division of the land, but it's also not just a division of the land, it's a division of the tribes, okay? So 10 and 2, okay? Anybody know the two tribes for Judah? Benjamin and Judah. Okay. Benny boy and Judah. Okay. Anybody want to give a shot at the, the other ten? Sure. Let's do it. Manasseh, Ephraim, uh, Dan, Natali, uh, Issachar, and Zebulun. Who was the oldest? Reuben. Reuben. Asher and Gad. Well done. You remembered all of those? There's one more. I missed one. Dan, Manasseh, Ephraim, Naphtali, Essachar, Simeon, Reuben, Asher, Gad. One more. I remember Zebulun. I don't see Zebulun. Zebulun, yeah. Good old Zebi. All of you should name your firstborn sons Zebulun. Because it was the last one that we remembered. <laughs> okay, so 
Matt, Devin, I know you already have a name picked out, but you got to change. <laughs> okay, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Good. Yeah, so not only is the division between uh, the – it's important that we remember, right? So these tribes are known by these two particular names, the, the, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, broken into a larger region, the north and the south. Okay, 10 and 2. So we get to see the, the narrative continue along these lines between the two different, um, or different places, right? So God's people, uh, especially as we look at both of these kings, people in the north, uh, they were flawed by the northern kings. So in 1 Kings 12 all the way to 2 Kings 21, we get to see the way that the flaws of the, the northern kingdom came to play. The very first king of Israel was Jeroboam. And he immediately leads God's people into idolatry. <laughs> In verse 28 of chapter 11, Jeroboam leads the people to make golden calves. Golden calves, for crying out loud. Didn't they remember from Moses, right? <laughs> from Exodus. That doesn't end well. In fact, Jeroboam's wickedness was so great that all the subsequent kings of Israel are compared to him to elevate just how wicked they are. In the same way of David's faithfulness being a benchmark for Judah's godliness, then we have Jeroboam's evil being the benchmark of evil. So this is a bad start for the nation. In chapter 14, verses 15 and 16, it says, The Lord will strike Israel as a reed and shake in water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger and he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam which he sinned and made Israel to sin. These are surely some of the saddest words so far in the Bible. The northern tribes are lost but the fulfillment of this doesn't come right away. It's still 200 years off. But in those 200 years, not a single king of Israel will not be counted as evil. 200 years of wickedness. It's in this context that we should talk more about the prophets, and the two prominent prophets and kings are Elijah and Elisha. Okay, Elijah and Elisha. You can read about them from 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings chapter 13. Why are they important? They're not kings, right? But they do speak the word of Yahweh to the kings and to the people. So if we think about our relationship structure, right? We've got God. Okay. We started with God. Who's the second piece now? We're going to put the P right here, okay? That's the prophet. That's Elijah and Elisha. Then we've got the king. Then we've got the people. So when the king is failing to mediate the covenant, God provides a way through the prophet to remind them of God's promises. So the prophets have two jobs. The first job was to remind the kings that they can't do whatever they want. That's it. First job, kings, you can't do whatever you want. They're like covenant watchdogs, keeping an eye on things. But their secondary task was to proclaim the punishment 
that the kings and the people would endure if they didn't repent. Okay? So they're reminding the kings, hey, you can't do whatever you want, and proclaiming to the kings and the people, if you don't repent, here is your punishment. Sadly, the kings and the people don't listen, and they are further into decay. And then 2 Kings 17 recounts the destruction of Israel by Assyria. The king of Assyria brings pagan nations to settle in the land of Israel. It's a complete reversal of what we read in Joshua, where the nation had taken over the land and dwelled with God. And now the nations are coming and taking over the land and kicking out the people. God takes his covenant faithfulness very seriously. As we see to apply this part of God's salvation history, this section with the northern kingdoms provides us of a stark reminder that sin will eventually catch up with us. We don't escape its grip. We can run from sin for years, but we cannot ultimately run from God's judgment. God will judge us. It will often cause us failure in this life, as it did for Solomon, or if not, in the, into the next part. Then we see God's people flawed with the southern kings. Now, the story of Judah is similar to that of the story of Israel, but there's one key difference. Anybody know what the key difference is? Can you repeat the question? What is the key difference between the story of Judah and the story of Israel? You have the fact that David's descendants are uh, reigning there. That's it, exactly. God has promised something to David. God has promised something to David. So as we look at this difference, turn back to 1 Kings chapter 15. Let me see. Abijam, okay? As we read, listen to how Yahweh deals differently here than he did with Jeroboam and why. 1 Kings chapter 15 says this. He walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Notice two things here. First, the reason that God showed mercy to Abijam was so that his son would succeed him was for David's sake. Mercy was given to him for David's sake. And the second thing to note is that as he was compared to David, as all the other kings of Judah were, they saw the benchmark of David's holiness and faithfulness. He was a man after God's own heart, so that would be the benchmark continuing on. He did it for David's sake, and David would be the benchmark for all the kings, just as Jeroboam was the benchmark for wickedness. As we walk through 1 and 2 Kings, we see that some Judean kings were good, like Hezekiah. Somebody mentioned Hezekiah in, in 2 Kings 18 through 20. He did what was right, though even these good kings fell short of the mark of David. Half of them were bad. About half of them were bad. In fact, when we get to Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, his reign is the worst yet. Second Kings 21 verses 11 and 12, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, 
and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Jeroboam sealed Israel's fate. Manasseh, in his sins, sealed Judah's. Judah will soon be taken captive just as Israel was. But just when it looks like everything's over, and that every king is flawed in comparison to David, and all hope is lost, kings finally reaches its climax with a king who amazingly exceeds even David in godliness and goodness. And that's Josiah, King Josiah, 2 Kings 22 and 23. Back in 1 Kings 13, 2, a prophecy that was 300 years before Manasseh, it says, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who make offerings on you and human bones shall be burned on you. So there was going to be this future king, Josiah, who would return true worship in Israel. Eventually he arrives here at the, king, the closing of Second Kings and there's not a lot of time to see all the amazing things that he has done. But if you scan through chapters 22 and 23, you can see the types of things that he accomplished. He finds the book of the law. He renews the covenant. He purges the land of idolatry. In fact, in, in chapter 23, verse 25, it says, Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Never before. What a remark. Here is one greater than David. But tragically, Josiah meets a tragic end. Judah will not escape final judgment. God's promised anger because of Manasseh will stand. This godly king, the finest king to live and reign over these people, will not live forever. He dies in battle. And again, God's promises and God's plan of redemption through David's line are left hanging on a thread. It is seemed all through this book that this solution was a godly king. But here he is, and we're still left waiting. If even Josiah isn't God's forever king, who's going to be? Well, that's what Josiah points us to, our need of a forever king who will need to defeat death. The final king in 2 Kings is Jehoiakim. As we get to Jehoiakim, we are in this situation where we're, we're waiting. We're just waiting for God to deliver on his promises. Soon after Josiah, there are three waves of attack by the Babylonians. And more and more captives are set. And in his place, his uncle is set up in Jerusalem by the Babylonians as a puppet king. However, this king, Zedekiah, rebels against the Babylonians. And his punishment is that just before his eyes are put out, his sons, the line of David, are killed right in front of him. As Kings concludes, the question becomes, is the promise over for God's people? Is God just going to start over again in the New Testament? His plan of redemption certainly looks like it's in shambles by the end of the book. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel are scattered and lost among the nations. And the remaining tribes, captive, far away from the land, 
So what about King David? Has Yahweh reneged on those promises? Was Yahweh too weak to stop so great a force as the terrible Babylonian army? We all know that this happened because of the sins of the kings. But it sure looks doubtful that anything can be salvaged from this situation. Has the seed of the serpent finally finished his job and killed off the seed of the woman? Well, hold on. There's a little ray of hope. There's one final descendant of David's line. The king that was captured right before Zedekiah took the throne, Jehoiakim, Josiah's great-grandson. He's in exile in Babylon, which is not good, but just as the book ends, Jehoiakim is released to dine for the rest of his days at the king's table. It's not much, but it is a ray of hope. After all of this, one descendant of David is still alive. As we conclude on that cliffhanger, we know what God's people in Babylon thought. But for us who have the privilege of living after Christ, we can see the true pinnacle of the story isn't Solomon, it isn't Judah, it isn't Josiah, it isn't Jehoiakim, it's Jesus, the forever king. You see, as we know, the ultimate fulfillment, King Jesus, completes the diagram. He completes the diagram. He's the one in David's line who never breaks any of God's law. He displays God's glory perfectly and allows us to display God's glory now. He brings full judgment of our sin through death. He brings blessing to us. He intercedes for us. He pleads that God might show a certain mercy if we would turn and trust in him. It is he who will take us to heaven, the promised land forever. And so reading King should leave us with that great excitement of knowing that God will indeed keep his promises, that we have the perfect king, the trustworthy king, the almighty king, King Jesus. That's First and Second Kings in a nutshell. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for how you rule and reign over your people. Thank you for your faithful promises, for your faithfulness. Though our sin is great, we trust in your mercy. We pray in repentance now of all of our sin. God, asking that you would help us to see Jesus, to see the grace and mercy that you've given us in him, to see that life is in him alone. Now may we live for your glory as we obey you through the clear instruction of your word. Amen. Amen.